I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 205 of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I tell you a little bit about a famous event from history, and then I tell you about the events that shared newspaper headlines with those famous stories. I tell you the forgotten or overlooked stories from history. Today's famous date is February 21st, 1885. That means that this event happened nearly 140 years ago this month. And it has to do with something, or rather someone, that we still celebrate every February. The truth is, though, if we count all of the time that this event was in the making, that 140 years turns into something closer to 250 years. Curious what I'm talking about? Well, let me read you today's famous event newspaper headline. This headline comes from the February 21st, 1885 edition of the Evening Star out of Washington, D.C. It says, The Monument, Imposing Ceremonies Today, The Colossal Shaft Dedicated. Friends, February 21st, 1885 was the day the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. was officially dedicated. It was such a big deal that this particular newspaper filled the first four pages of their paper with stories of the dedication and building of the monument. And the print on these pages is really small, too, so there's a lot of information there. The idea of a monument to George Washington was voted on by the Continental Congress clear back in 1783. The intent was to make a statue of him and have it placed in the capital city. But when Washington actually became president a few years later, he started looking for ways to save money, and he basically said, thanks but no thanks to the statue in my honor. Well, after he died in 1799, Congress again wanted to do something special for the first president and the hero of the Revolutionary War. That time, they decided to build a mausoleum in the shape of a pyramid inside the Capitol Rotunda. And, obviously, that monument was never built either. Fast forward to 1833, and a group of people came together, upset that nothing had ever been done to memorialize Washington. The group was headed by Chief Justice John Marshall, and they quickly started to raise funds to have the monument built. At one point, the wives of John Quincy Adams, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton were all enlisted to help raise funds from the women of the country. The group also hosted a contest to decide what the monument should look like. The winner of the contest was an architect named Robert Mills. He's also the man who designed the U.S. Patent Office, the U.S. Treasury Building, and the Smithsonian American Art Museum. So, what was Mr. Mills' design? Well, it was supposed to be a pantheon with 30 columns around the edges. And then inside would be statues of signers of the Declaration of Independence and Revolutionary War heroes. At the main entrance would be a statue of George Washington himself driving a horse-drawn chariot. And then right in the center of the Pantheon would be a 600-foot-tall obelisk. 
It was very extravagant, and it was going to cost a lot of money. On July 4th, 1848, the cornerstone of the monument was laid. And underneath the stone, a box with money, a copy of the Constitution, newspaper clippings, and a portrait of George Washington himself was buried. The three women I mentioned a minute ago were present, as well as other famous people of the time, and two U.S. presidents, Millard Fillmore and Martin Van Buren. A third man who would eventually be president was in the audience. You might have heard of him before. It was Abraham Lincoln. I'm not sure if the current president of the time, James Polk, was there or not, because it didn't actually say. The ceremony almost didn't happen, though. A few weeks before the cornerstone ceremony, the truck that was hauling the cornerstone to the side of the monument was crossing a canal using the 14th Street Bridge when it broke through the bridge and down into the mud in the muck below. This was near the Navy Yard, and when the men found out what was happening, they showed up in droves to help. The newspaper said that by the time the stone was hauled out, there was probably a thousand people there. Bands played music, and the car that the stone was put into ended up getting decorated with flags and even a live eagle. The crowds cheered as they pulled the car along blocks placed in the road to direct its path. After the cornerstone ceremony, construction soon got underway. But in a few years, by 1854, the project was running low on funds. The money just wasn't coming in like they'd hoped, and work on the monument had to be stopped. Then something really crazy happened. The board of the project was taken over by an anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic group called the Know-Nothings. And when they found out that the Pope had donated a block of stone from an ancient Roman temple for the project, they weren't exactly thrilled. One night, someone poisoned the watchdog who stood guard at the shed where all the stones donated from foreign countries were being held. And then they wrapped a rope around the box where the night watchman sat so that he couldn't open the door and get out of his box. He wasn't found until the next morning when the day watchman arrived. Then, under the cover of darkness, the group broke into the shed and took the stone. Nobody knows where it went, but everyone, even today, believes that the know-nothings took it. People even made up rhymes about the Pope sending a stone and and sung those tunes in the streets of Washington, D.C. Despite rewards being offered, and despite a huge effort from the police and a number of suspects, Nobody was ever able to prove who took the stone or where it ended up. To this day, roughly 170 years later, the whereabouts of the stone are still unknown. But most people believe it was tossed into the Potomac River by the Know-Nothings. So, somewhere out there, there's a stone from an ancient Roman temple. Anyway, once the unpopular group had seized control of the board, People completely stopped donating money to the project, and no work was really done on it. And then something else huge happened, and the project was basically forgotten for a while. Yeah, it was the Civil War. It literally tore the country apart. Finally, in 1876, President Grant decided to make the project a federally funded monument, and work finally started again in 1879. But if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., 
And if you've ever seen the Washington Monument, you might have noticed that it isn't a consistent color. That's because the half-built obelisk had sat for 20 years. And when it came time to start building again, they couldn't match the stone, and two other quarries ended up being used to complete the project. And that entire pantheon with all the statues and George Washington in a chariot? Yeah, that got scrapped. The monument was, and is, strictly an obelisk. When the project was finally finished, the monument stood at 555 feet and 5 and 1 eighths inches tall. It was the tallest structure in the world, at least for a couple of years, and then the Eiffel Tower got built and passed it up. Finally, on February 21st, 1885, today's famous date, and 37 years after the project began, the monument was finished and dedicated in a huge ceremony on the day before George Washington's birthday. President Chester A. Arthur, the president of the time, was the one who dedicated it. Then, three years later, the monument was officially opened to the public. There's a lot more I could tell you about the building of the monument, but for now, I'll let it go, and I'll tell you some additional history stories instead. There was a lot going on in the world that day. Like I said, there was a lot going on around the world but also just in the capital city during the first part of 1885. There was, of course, the dedication of the Washington Monument that I just told you about, but the country was also less than two weeks away from the inauguration of President Grover Cleveland. This was back when presidential inaugurations always happened on March 4th. But, sadly, even though it was a time for much celebration and pomp and circumstance, For some, it was a time of great loss and mourning in the Washington, D.C. area. So, for my first additional history story of the day, I'm going to tell you about something tragic that happened near D.C., just days before the dedication of the Washington Monument. I'm taking this headline from the St. Paul Globe out of St. Paul, Minnesota. It says, The Virginia Train Wreck. Yes, it's another train crash story but it's been a while since I shared one with you. The train wreck happened near Alexandria, Virginia, just a quick trip down the George Washington Memorial Parkway from the nation's capital city. Of course, the road didn't exist back in 1885, but that's why train travel was so enticing. The Civil War had been over for about 20 years at this point, and the city of Alexandria, which had been a seaport, was also becoming known as a railroad port. Unfortunately, This brought a lot of train accidents with it, too. Dozens of accidents. There was snow on the ground that night, and it was a cold February evening. A northbound passenger train left the station in Alexandria right around 10 p.m. It was an express train headed for Washington, and the whole trip should have only lasted about 20 minutes. This train had a safe on board that had a lot of money in it, as well as a mail car. Because of that, many of the crew members of that train were actually postal employees. Meanwhile, a southbound freight train had left Washington about 15 minutes earlier. That train was 35 cars long. That train had a baggage car, and a mail car too, a passenger coach, a smoking car, 
and two Pullman sleepers, as well as the freight it was carrying, including big barrels of oil. For most of the journey between Alexandria and Washington, D.C., there were double tracks, so it didn't matter if trains were going in opposite directions at the same time. Except, there was an exception to the double train tracks. At a place known as Four Mile Run, there was a tunnel that trains had to pass through, and the tunnel wasn't wide enough to fit two tracks. But it was okay most of the time. A system had been rigged up where a train heading into the tunnel would trigger a red light to go off on the other side of the tunnel. If a train came along and saw that their red light was glowing, they knew they had to stop and wait for the other train to pass them. It was a good system, and it usually worked pretty well. That is, until February 19, 1885. Nobody knows for sure what happened, but for some reason, the light system didn't work that night. And just as the northbound train was exiting the tunnel, it collided with the freight train headed south. The impact was so big that it pushed the engines into each other and then upward, almost as if they were forming an upside-down V. The passenger train seemed to get the most of the damage, and some of the cars were smashed to splinters. If the smashed-up cars weren't enough, the smashing of combustible materials started a fire. And not just a little one. The fire from the train crash was so big, it could be seen all the way in Washington, D.C. And since it was a windy day, the fire wasn't easy to put out, and the flames quickly spread. One of the cars on the freight train was carrying barrels of oil, like I said, and as you can imagine, when the flames reached the oil, it exploded. 27 of the 31 cars on the freight train were completely destroyed, including both engines and a couple of cars on the passenger train were destroyed. The passengers on the train were shaken up, and in the pitch black, it was hard to know what had just happened to them. They didn't know if they were in the Potomac River or if they were still on the tracks. Or maybe they had just tipped over. Some of them were able to get themselves out of the cars they'd been riding in, and they began to wander around the scene. They found the body of the conductor of the freight train. It was obvious that he was dead, and there was nothing they could do for him. Then they found the body of the fireman who worked on the passenger train. Well, sort of. He was burned very badly, and they only found the upper half of his body. The engineer, the fireman, and one of the brakemen of the freight train were also killed. A postal clerk on the passenger train died too. In total, six men lost their lives in the accident. Luckily though, all of the cars carrying the passengers were in the back of the train, and none of the passengers were killed. The injured and the dead were taken to a nearby home. Some of the passengers that weren't injured eventually got tired of waiting for a rescue train to come. I mean, it did take three hours for the train to get there, so they set off walking in the falling snow to Washington, D.C. For whatever reason, the safe on the train had been open when the trains collided. So when they burst into flames, crew members tried to reach the safe to close it and protect the money on board, but it was too late. And as much as $150,000 in cash was burned up. A bushel of silver dollars that had been on the train was burned and many of them melted together. And to make matters worse, 
Since there were mail cars on the train, a lot of letters and packages burned up. Thirteen pouches of mail coming from the cities in the south, like Mobile, Alabama and New Orleans, Louisiana, were completely lost. They were said to have contained money and valuables in the packages, too. A hundred pouches of what they called ordinary mail was also burned up, along with a couple hundred letters that weren't in pouches. At the time, and probably still today, it was the largest loss of mail in the history of the U.S. postal system. We'll just hope that the mail didn't contain any matters of life or death since it never arrived at its destination. Now, this brings us to the end of this first additional history story. But I first want to add that, like usual, the four-mile-run train wreck wasn't the only train wreck written about that day. There was also a wreck in Indiana. A train unknowingly crossed over a section of broken track, and it almost made it all the way across. But as the last car, a sleeper car, was passing over the broken section, it derailed and was thrown down an embankment. Three people who were asleep in the car were killed. And just outside Poplar Bluff, Missouri, a train engine clipping along at full speed suddenly exploded. It killed the engineer and seriously wounded the fireman. And at the time of the writing, he wasn't expected to live. There were probably other train incidents being reported about that day, but I'll move on from those tragedies. At least, for now. For my second additional history story of the day, I've got a murder story for you. I've said it before and I'll say it again, murder sells newspapers. And since this was the 1880s, some of the stories were a bit sensationalized. In this case, I read multiple accounts and they definitely varied. First, I'll tell you the version that I read first. It comes from the Ottawa Daily Republic out of Ottawa, Kansas. The headline says, The Work of Jealousy. This murder happened in Hodgenville, a small town in Kentucky. A man named Ben Coombs and his wife were neighbors to Jake Mason and his wife, but they weren't exactly friends. You see, Ben Coombs was a jealous man, and he had it in his head that Jake Mason was having an affair with his wife. One day, Ben told his wife that he was going to go to Elizabethtown, which was just a few miles north of where they lived. And he told her that he would be gone the entire day and wouldn't return until the next day. Except, Ben wasn't exactly telling the truth. In reality, he pretended to leave, but really he just went far enough away from the home where he could watch it and see what transpired. Sure enough, just as he'd feared, as soon as he'd been away for a little bit, Jake Mason showed up at his house. Ben was livid. His worst nightmare had just been confirmed. He jumped out of his hiding place with a double-barrel shotgun and began shooting at the pair before they could make it inside the house. He fired and fired, filling the couple full of squirrel shot. They were shot in their heads, their necks, and their faces. Jake was killed instantly, but Mrs. Coombs managed to survive. After her husband left, probably thinking she was dead, she dragged herself about a mile down the road to the nearest home where she was given medical attention 
and sounded the alarm on what had just transpired. At the time the article was printed, Mrs. Mason was still alive, but her injuries were very severe and she wasn't expected to live. Now, the most surprising part was what Ben Coombs did after he shot his wife and her supposed lover. Immediately after the shooting, he went to Jake Mason's home and told Mrs. Mason what he had just done. And then what did they do? They packed their bags and fled together to Nashville or Memphis or somewhere. And that's about all the article said. It was unclear whether or not Ben and Mrs. Mason were also having an affair. If she went willingly with him, or maybe if he forced her to go with him. It was also unclear if anyone knew where they were actually hiding out, or if just guesses were being made. So, I went to another newspaper to see what additional information I could find. And according to that second article, the Coombs and the Masons had moved to Hodgenville together from Nashville about six months before the shooting took place. And according to that article, the couples lived in the same house, but each couple had their own room or rooms in the house. It wasn't a secret that Ben thought Jake was a little too familiar with his wife, and the two men had fought about the relationship before. This article made it seem like Mrs. Mason willingly went along with Ben. They boarded a train together and everything. Some articles even say they eloped together. So, what was the outcome of the story? Did Mrs. Coombs live or die? Was Ben Coombs ever found and charged? Was Mrs. Mason with him? Did he go to trial? Friends, I would love to give you answers to all of those questions and more. Unfortunately, try as I might, I could not find anything else about this story. Not in the newspapers, and not in other historical records. It seems like every newspaper in the country printed the story when it initially happened, but none of them did a follow-up story that I could find. Now, I'd like to think that it's just my researching skills that are lacking, and that there are articles out there with an acceptable conclusion to this story. But the truth of the matter is that all four people involved in this story were black, and the media was very quick to point out skin color in articles during that time period. The article writers would often pass judgment or make little remarks about the race. The details were never covered in the same way that they were with higher-profile cases. So, sadly, maybe we'll never know what really happened in Kentucky back in 1885, just because nobody cared what happened to someone that was of a different race than they were. My last additional history story of the day comes from the Reading Times out of Reading, Pennsylvania. The headline says, The Work of Fiends. This incident actually took place a few days earlier than February 21st, 1885, but it wasn't until the 21st that newspapers were able to report what the cause of the incident was, and it got reported in a lot of papers that day. This incident happened at the Blockley Alms House in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alms House was home to many hundreds of people, and it was kind of a multi-purpose building in the community. It was partially a workhouse, partially a shelter, partially an orphanage, and partially a hospital. And yes, there was a section of that hospital 
for those who at the time were called insane. On the evening of February 12th, just before 8 p.m., a fire broke out at the Blockley Almshouse, specifically in one of the older buildings that housed those deemed mentally insane. The building was huge and it had 80 separate cells where violent patients could be kept alone, away from other people that they might hurt. Each floor of the building also had big rooms containing 12 cots for other patients. There was a drying room that was heated by steam on the second floor, right near the staircase. I can imagine that there was always linens and clothing hanging up to dry in that room, because with that many people living in a building, there's got to be a lot of laundry. Anyway, fire investigators were able to tell that the fire had started right there in that drying room. But at the time of the fire, they didn't know why it started. So, just before 8 p.m., one of the patients, a man named Joseph Nadine, sounded the alarm that there was a fire. He was assigned to stay in the room next to the drying room, and he occupied that room with roughly 20 other patients. He began to yell, fire, fire, and the attendants on duty that night heard the yelling and ran to the scene. They grabbed buckets of water and attempted to douse the flames near the stairway, assuming that the fire was contained to that one area. But it didn't take long for them to realize that the drying room was engulfed. So the attendants changed what they were doing and instead started helping to evacuate the patients of that wing. Now, patients were locked in cells and they had to wait to be let out of their rooms, even in those big rooms with all the cots. But even when the doors were opened, it wasn't possible for everyone to evacuate themselves. Some of the patients had physical disabilities that prevented them from running to safety. Some of the patients were old and feeble, and that prevented their timely escape. And some of them were so far gone mentally that they didn't know what was happening and they didn't know what they should do. One of the attendants managed to unlock the doors of every single patient on the first floor. And even though some of them had to be carried, he ran back and forth and back and forth, dumping patients in the yard before running back into the building, successfully getting all of the first floor evacuated. While that attendant was working, another attendant was doing the same thing for the patients on the second floor. But the smoke and the flames were beginning to engulf that area, and it made breathing impossible. After the first floor was evacuated, that attendant and the night watchman ran to the third floor to try to save patients up there. But the flames had crept up the stairwell, and they were smothering the patients up there. By this time, the firemen had arrived, and they were pulling people out the second-story windows. But for those on the third floor, it was a different story. People could hear their screams and their cries, and reportedly even some heard, quote, hideous laughter. One of the patients and three firemen crawled around on their hands and knees and managed to drag 14 men out of the building. Some of them were found to have already passed away. When all was said and done, and all the patients who had been wandering the streets of town, not knowing what to do, were gathered back, a count was taken. And, depending on the newspaper, the number of dead varied wildly in the first few days. But in reality, it was believed that at least 20 men lost their lives in that fire. One of the men died with his hands chained to his sides. Apparently during his time in the institution, he'd killed three men. 
So he was permanently chained, and he'd been that way for 20 years. Another man that died had been found in his brother's shed 15 years earlier. His brother had chained him up in that shed and kept him there for 20 years. It's absolutely horrifying what some of these men had to live through, only to turn around and die in such a horrid way. Well, fast forward about a week and a half to February 21st, and newspapers all over the place were reporting that a coroner's inquest had been completed, and the reason behind the fire was determined. The fire had been intentionally set by one of the patients, a man named Joseph Nadine. Do you remember that name from a few minutes ago? Joseph had been the person that initially alerted everyone to the fire. Joseph had been admitted to the hospital because, according to the terms used at the time, he was an imbecile. Doctors agreed that he did know right from wrong, and he was smart enough that they would sometimes allow him to leave the almshouse and visit his family in town all by himself. But, according to Joseph, someone had dared him to start the fire. That person had given Joseph a match and told him to start the place on fire. So, Joseph went into the drying room and lit a pile of garbage on the floor. So who was it that gave Joseph the match in the first place? Well, it wasn't a patient, but rather a man with the last name of Schroeder, and he was one of the chief attendants of the Blockley Almshouse. He was one of the men helping to rescue all those patients the night of the fire. Joseph said that Schroeder had told him he was tired of the place and he didn't like at least one of the doctors there because the doctor wouldn't give him a railroad pass, so he was going to leave. And basically, he was going to burn the place down on his way out. Yep, it was a pretty outrageous story. But it was also believable to those hearing the story. And apparently there was enough evidence because Schroeder was arrested. More details continued to come out including the fact that Joseph had set fire to the building two other times. But both times the fires were discovered and extinguished before they did much damage. Schroeder had known about the other fires, but he kept them a secret. And then he used Joseph's affinity for fire to his advantage. So far, this is a pretty crazy story, right? Well, when the case went to court, Schroeder ended up being released because there wasn't enough evidence against him. And Joseph Nadine didn't tell the same story in court as he did during the coroner's inquest. So, what really happened in February 1885? We'll probably never know. Was Schroeder guilty? Or was Nadine lying? For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from page 3 of the Savannah Morning News out of Savannah, Georgia. This is an ad for steamships run by the Merchants and Miners Transportation Company. They would take passengers up the coast from Savannah, Georgia to Baltimore, Maryland, leaving every five days. The second class rate was $12 a ticket, the cabin rate was $15 a ticket, and the excursion rate, whatever that was, cost a whopping $25. Of course, you need to take inflation into consideration, but even then, it was a really good deal, and you got a lot for your money. 
friends, thanks for joining me today as we talked about the dedication of the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. I hope you have an enjoyable President's Day later this month. Maybe get out and celebrate with your friends and family. And then I hope you'll join me again in a couple weeks from now when I release another episode. This is about another man that I think everybody knows. Talk to you later.